Good evening, everybody. And you too, Mr. Real. I am doing fantastic, Radio for Moment. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. Thank you so much. I hope everybody out there in the studio audience is doing fine too. Hope you guys all had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, got a plenty of tryptophan, took a good nap, and went up for seconds and thirds. Uh, had a little pumpkin pie and enjoyed uh, enjoyed the festivities of a great holiday. How was your Thanksgiving? It was wonderful. I was able to spend it with some family. This awesome. would be some of the few remaining family members who still speak to me. Yeah, you know, I, as time goes on, I have less and less of those too. So it might just be our abrasive personalities, RFM. Oh my gosh, I don't know what you're talking about. Me? Yeah, you're the one nobody can get along with. That's it. I'm the I'm the tough guy. <laughs> Folks, uh, yesterday was Giving Tuesday. We did send out a email to all the donors that we have email addresses for. But I here we are Wednesday. We're a little bit of a day late on the show, but we would love, uh, very much appreciate if folks would consider supporting the show. We survive on donations. We are a 501c3, Mormon Discussion Incorporated, as the umbrella. This show, Mormonism Live, in our ability to... Uh, create content and devote time and energy to the research that this show requires. We survive on the donations of folks like you. We would very much uh, appreciate if you would go to mormonismlive.org, click the donate button, and uh, a $5 a month, $10 a month donation would be great. Donations have plateaued uh, over the last, say, maybe six to nine months, and uh, that makes me a little nervous, and I would... Uh, and I know RFM would be grateful if folks would consider, if you don't already, and if you do, we're deeply grateful for you. But if you if you don't, uh, if you'd consider being a member of our team uh, by donating and being a regular donor to the program, uh, we'd very much appreciate it. And Spencer Kimball said, we have remained on this plateau long enough. Give me yeah. this mountain. It was more like, give me this mountain, right? Mountain this give me. Yeah, well, I just met. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if that if there's any truth to that, the the whole Yoda Spencer W. Kimball connection. I, I might have sounded like Packer there, but I was trying to do Spencer W. Kimball. They do sound a lot alike. One because he doesn't have his vocal cords, the other one just because that's his voice. So <laughs> uh we have a great show for you folks tonight. And we have a legend, a rock star uh that we'd like to bring on. And so I'm gonna bring on uh Paul Toscano to the show. Uh, folks, most of you out there are going to know who, uh, who Paul. You're piping the sound in live from the studio audience, Paul. That's for you. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. Okay, shut Paul. up, please, ladies and gentlemen. That's enough. Yeah, Paul is. Like, <laughs> you, can they listen? Paul. Uh, I do want to give you a moment to introduce yourself to the audience, and I want you to at least tie in for a brief moment the September 6th, because that's how folks are really going to know you, uh, I think, primarily. And also, you've done a lot of scholarship and work in this uh, in this space. That's not going to work, RFM. I've got the oh, names really? there in the screen, so we'll move in when we go to the slideshow, I promise. Oh, I'm but sorry about that. Okay. I apologize. <laughs> yes. So, Paul, take a few minutes, and uh, for the one or two folks out there who don't know who you are, would you mind... Um, letting them know. Well, let me be brief. Uh, I'm, I'm Paul Toscano. I uh, uh, was baptized a Catholic when I was an infant. I joined Mormonism in 1963 in California. Um, I went to BYU in September of 63. Uh, in fact, I got there on the 19th of 1963, and I was excommunicated on September 19th, 1993. So it 
it makes nice bookends. I, uh, I, um, I at BYU, I, uh, I, I was there for three years before I went on my mission in 1966. I went to the Italian mission when it was one mission. Uh, my mission president uh, was uh, his name was uh, Duns, uh, John Duns, and uh, but he was he left early. And I, then for the last month or so, a couple of months of my mission, Hartman Rector Jr. was my my mission president. I became friends with him. We were friends for a long time uh, up until he died. I knew his family quite well. Uh, I uh, at BYU, I one of my mentors at BYU, maybe my principal mentor at BYU in religion was Hiram Andrus. And uh, I, I before I went on my mission, I I probably knew, knew more about Mormon history and Mormon theology than most Mormons do, uh, just in the three years that I studied with him before I went on my mission in 1966. Uh, I, I became a lawyer. I went to law school at BYU Law School in, in 1978. Can I interrupt uh, you here while you're talking about your legal education, Paul? Excuse me. Uh, Hiram Andrus, I don't know how many people remember him, but I know that uh, having never met him, I was familiar with his work. He had, wasn't it a series of four books? Where he covered uh, yeah, he Mormon had, doctrine. Yeah, he did. I think one was called God, Man, and the Universe, and another yes. Principles of Perfection, and another one, uh, you know, Joseph Smith and World Government. Uh, he 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 was. Eventually, they they booted him out of the religion department, and in uh, I think it was 1974 or three. Um, what well, was he? Too anyway, creative? I got a master's degree at BYU in English literature. Sorry. Uh, I, I then I went to law school in 1975. I graduated in 78. I married Margaret Merrill uh, in 1978 and got myself excommunicated for my opinions in 1993. So that's a kind of a brief summary of that. In, in like one in like one sentence, Paul, you know, I, I was excommunicated too, and I everybody knows what that was for. But in the September 6, you being one of those who was excommunicated, in, in like one sentence, what was the gist? of what you did that crossed the line? I um, rebuked the leaders of the church. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, uh, they, when I uh, I was tried, I brought in, you know, all, all my stuff that I'd written. They were not interested in that. They were interested in the one speech I gave in August of 1993 at the Sunstone Symposium, which was called um, uh, All is Not Well in Zion, False Teachings of the True Church. And uh, in it, I, what they were really the most upset about was that <laughs> I made a couple of what I thought humorous quips that they took umbrage uh, with. And um, one of them was um, the April before that, April of 1993, Russell Nelson had given a speech where he, he said that, uh, he said a couple of speeches. One was that when an apostle enters the room, we should all stand up. And in my speech, I said, well, maybe we should all stand up and leave. And they didn't <laughs> like that. And then I said, uh, you know, Moses was told, take off the shoes of thy feet. Uh, and I said, maybe we should just take off. And and I said these kind of quips, you know, just mockingly in the, in my speech in August of 1993. But that was the main, they, they felt that I was so insolent. That yeah. it was my insolence because I would treat the apostles as equals. And they can't right. tolerate that. And so, yeah. and also, I, I, I rebuked. Uh, uh, later, I wrote an article for Sunstone where I rebuked Russell Nelson because he's, he's taught that God's love was conditional. 
and I, I rebuked him for that. I said, God's love is unconditional. His, appro his approval may be conditional. I mean, I, I, I love my children unconditionally. I don't always approve of what they do, but that has nothing to do with loving them. And if I can make that distinction, certainly God can, but apparently Russell Nelson cannot make that distinction. He's not a, he's not a person of nuance. He's the person who is essentially a kind of a black and white thinker. And so, yeah. uh, that was the reason I was really excommunicated, not for teaching any particular doctrine, but just for being insolent to the leaders of the church. That's very much like Bill Real, because he got excommunicated for making a joke when he called Elder Holland a liar. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what the punchline <laughs> was. <but> yeah. <laughs> Similar, though. We, we know what's untouchable. It's the brethren in their character. You can't you can't touch that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yes. that, that to me is the sign of a despotism, and it's the despotic nature of Mormonism that creates all the problems. Yeah. The reason I was focusing on Hiram Andrus, uh, obsessively perhaps, was just that I read some of his books, and I was aware that he was maybe 90% orthodox and 10% creative in his reading of Scripture, which is why it was interesting to read what, it, what he had to say. And you're going to go on, and you're going to talk about some interesting non-orthodox and can i say creative ways of viewing yeah, the scripture sure. think, that you yourself have come they up are with. imaginative perhaps imaginary but i think definitely imaginative and i learned that from hiram hiram yeah. had an influence on a lot of us at byu uh more so than people are willing to get he, i think mike quinn certainly margaret i think there were others andy ehat uh lyndon cook a lot of people uh, knew Hiram and and he focused on, and I would say the percentages are different. I think he was 30% creative and 70% orthodox. And it was that, it was that quality in him, uh, his willingness to say things that certainly offended the leaders that caused him to be released from the religion department as a professor there. And they stuck him in the back room of the library at BYU to do research but not to, they didn't want him to speak or have a, because he was getting a following. He was a little bit like George Pace, who mm -hmm. also got rebuked because he was creative in his thinking. Yeah. I, I want to jump here into the slideshow and give you the chance to start. I just want to let the listeners know, you and I had some conversations maybe three weeks ago or so, where we talked on telephone. Uh, you shared some of these ideas with me. We thought it'd be a great idea to bring you on and give you a chance to share with our audience. Um, I think your way of framing Mormonism and the, val the value of Mormon text is uh, unique to some extent and uh, not a view I think that people are going to be extremely familiar with for sure. And I think it's uh, deeply interesting. And, and what I'm hoping will happen in this conversation is we'll let you get through uh, a lot of this. We'll offer some pushback here and there. And uh, we've already done, I think, some of that kind of in a fun way and, and having conversation with you uh, via telephone. And I'm really excited to have this conversation for listeners to get a chance to see uh, some of this material that you put together. So I'm going to put the slideshow up. I'm going to just make sure that I've got the right overlay for that. And uh, I'll let you sort of take it from here and we'll poke in from time to time to, to ask a question or to uh, offer some constructive criticism and see what the response is. Great. Well, this first slide has crossed out, could Mormonism still be true, which, which was your title. Yeah. And I thought, well, I don't deal in truth. 
I, I deal in perceptions of truth or different readings or narratives. So I changed it to could Mormonism and its sacred texts still have value. And what I was thinking when I did that was that, of course, there's a polarization in the church like there is in the nation. And there are the true believers and the true non-believers. And uh, they, they, some think a church is a fraud and some think everything that comes out of it is true. And between those two poles, I feel there's a spectrum of possibilities that we should discuss and explore that may or may not have value depending on people's experience. So that's what this slideshow is about. Awesome. So we go to the next slide. Yeah, and I want to ask just one real quick question, and you can make it, the answer really brief, which is, uh, even though we're not talking about Mormonism being true, we're talking about Mormonism's sacred text, do they still have value? You would still posit that there is a spiritual higher power behind Joseph Smith, at least early on in Mormonism, that leads to the reasoning for this, right? Well, I think that's a subjective opinion of mine, and I think that there I think there's evidence of that, but it's the kind of evidence that's very circumstantial and, and really open to debate. I don't think there's any way to show spiritual realities or prove them. I think that's a personal opinion of mine that I think there is some spiritual value to the, the Mormon revelations, but we'll get to that and people can agree or disagree. Perfect. Uh, I, when I'm speaking here, I want to make clear that when I talk about Mormonism and its sacred text, I'm not talking about the LDS Church. The LDS Church is a subset of the of Mormonism, in my view. And I think there are a lot of problems with the LDS Church. And I have no judgment for people who leave it because it hurts them or damages them in some fashion. Yeah. Uh, I also think that the LDS Church, when people say the church did this or the church did that, or this policy of the church is offensive, or their policy of racism or misogyny or homo. They have I the church is not the people, it's not the ward, it's not the stakes. In my view, that, that when you talk about the church in that sense, we're talking about the LDS apostolate. That is the first presidency and the quorum of the twelve, the first presidency acting like a CEO, a CFO, and a CXO, and the 12 apostles acting as a board of directors in a corporate sense. And in that sense, I lay the blame of the problems in the church right at the feet of the apostles because they are, they manage the church uh, in a kind of old Soviet style management. You know, they, uh, they interfere with all the departments of the church. They have to give approval for everything. So I'm not trying to defend that church or that corporate structure. I am only discussing the value, if any, of Mormonism in its broader sense and in what it considers its sacred text. Okay, so we can go to the next slide. And just to be clear, because I, not, I know a lot of uh, former Mormons watch this particular show, uh, I'm not an apologist for the LDS Church. I'm not a missionary seeking convert. I'm not starting a church. I do not want followers. I'm not attempting to establish the truth in the metaphysical sense, and I'm not a professional historian or theologian, although I am a lawyer and I am a scholar, and I am presenting possible alternative readings of Mormon literary, theological, and historical narratives. That's what I attempt to do. So we can get past that slide. Um, let me say that I have agreements with most ex-Mormons. I think the church structure is patriarchal and controlling. 
The LDS apostles dominate all the departments of the church. They are authoritarian, often blind, sometimes untruthful. They interfere in people's lives by demanding loyalty and obedience. They have covered mistakes through lies and half-truths. They put themselves in a separate class and are intolerant of criticism. And they have refused to admit or correct misogyny, racism, and homophobia, as well as elitism and, and the mismanagement of their money. On so these problems history. trigger faith crises for many Latter-day Saints. I know this. I'm aware of it. And I'm not trying to say that those people have not made a rational decision in how they respond to the, the these list of problems that the church creates. Yeah, I, I think that's a great list. You get right to the heart of what's wrong with with Mormonism. But uh, by all means, yeah, I've watched it for forty years or so, so I'm kind of aware of it. So yeah. we go to the next slide. Uh, there are other things that trigger faith crisis: polygamy, polygyny, polyandry, the translation of the Book of Mormon, the rock and the hat the translation of the Book of Abraham, the Egyptian alphabet and grammar, which was a favorite thing that William W. Phelps was involved in, the historicity of the Book of Mormon, there's no historical evidence, the transparency regarding finances, the fact that Ensign Peak has 124,000 piles of millions of dollars. If you have a million dollars in a pile, they have at least 124,000 piles of millions of dollars. I'm shocked. Back in 1957, the church was embarrassed about the fact that it was in the red. And somehow, with the help of N. Eldon Tanner and Henry Eyring and other people, God knows whom, um, they managed to build this giant pile of money, like a Tower of Babel. And then there's uh, the last thing, their transparency regarding the membership statistics. Are we gaining or losing members? We never know because they're not forthcoming about that. So let's skip that to the next slide. I can understand that many Mormons believe there is no value at all to the church, to Mormonism, or to the Mormon experience. For many of the pe people, the ex-Mormons, leaving the church is like walking away from an awful marriage to a vile spouse. And that's how they feel. And uh, okay, I so you've covered with Paul, you've covered the good aspects of the church. Tell us about the bad stuff now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, radio. <laughs> Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like the play? Uh, I know. It's kind of things. Let's go to the next slide. Um, so if the church is as bad as that, which is your point, why care about alternative narratives? And I have three answers to this, which I'm going to read, because when you have slides, you have to read them or else people don't follow. And these are important answers from my perspective. Answer number one is that the religious experiences of uh, LDS church members and the complex content of Mormonism's sacred texts resist a shallow either or or true false assessment of Mormonism, I believe. People do have spiritual experiences and the texts, even though their provenance is in question, the actual texts themselves are complex theologically and philosophically, and they deserve attention. And that was stated by people smarter than me, including uh, the Harvard uh, literary critic, Carol Bloom. So when you're saying the, those texts, you mean the three that are exclusively Mormon, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price? And the Holy Bible. And the Bible, you're including that as well? Yeah, the four standard works. Okay. My second answer is the Book of Mormon contains philosophical and theological ideas that refute damaging doctrines of Orthodox Christianity, 
and damaging teachings of the corporate LDS church and hierarchy. The Book of Mormon is a witness against the LDS church, and we'll show why. And my answer three is, like the Old and New Testament, the Book of Mormon, the Book of Moses, the Book of Abraham, despite their providence problems, have value as literature, even for those who do not believe in their divine origins. But this is true only if one values the humanities and the arts equally with mathematics and science and the sciences. Can, can I jump in for just a second, Paul? Yes. Um, so first off, I agree with you. If the if the, if Joseph Smith had just stopped with the text and not imposed some sort of priesthood authority and priesthood keys and uh, top-down leadership and, and all the stuff that's come with it, I think they would have been a much healthier church. I think one could, for the most part, There's, I think there are places, but one could get away with using the Book of Mormon. You know, I'm thinking of, for instance, if someone's raped, they lose their virtue, which is just a horrible teaching. But there, I think, for the most part, the Book of Mormon can be used in a very soft way to help people develop faith in Christ and all that good stuff. But your first answer, I, I want to push back just a touch and see what your thoughts are. The Book of Mormon claims to be an ancient text written by ancient prophets. Moroni, at the end, asks the reader to pray about these things, which includes the the, the historical storyline, the characters, the things that happened to them. It's not just the teachings. It's you're praying about the book in its totality. It seems as though the Book of Mormon, at least in some ways, really does impose on its listener that it take a very rigid, or at least on the historical level, a very shallow view of what that book could be. Any thoughts you have there? I'll get to those thoughts uh, in due course here. I want to do it in the order that I oh. put in the slideshow because it takes some a little bit of um, a little bit of preparation to get my answer clear. Okay. So let me, and this immediately gets to this point, which is this thing I say a short digression. One of the principal problems that we have in Mormonism is this it really does come from what you just said, Bill, and that is that the Book of Mormon presents itself as a history. And Moroni says, pray about these things. And you get this supernatural answer about what is essentially a history. And it's uh, and then we can't find, where's Zarahemla? Where's Nephi's garbage? Where are all the dead people and the swords and the horses and the, right, the written records? What, what's going on? Well, in order to understand my answer to this conundrum, I, I have to do a short digression and, and talk about that the, the uh, polarization of the concept of idealism and materialism is a false dichotomy. Now, what do I mean by idealism and materialism? Well, idealism really comes down from Plato and Aristotle and the Neoplatonists. And uh, idealism means that there is a reality, a spiritual, psychological, paranormal reality beyond the world that's accessible through the senses, even when those senses are augmented by machines like telescopes and microscopes and whatever. Idealism is that there's something beyond the physical world. Materialism states that the only reality is the world accessible through the senses, augmented by machines, and modeled through mathematics. So what we have here are two polar ideas. My view, which is I think increasingly being uh, 
substantiated by quantum physics and by the field theories uh, of quantum field theories is that there's some kind of a hybrid that's taking place between the the idealism and the materialism. Uh, and I have two, I want to present two um, images that might help people sort out what I'm talking about. But one is actually a quote, uh, which I won't get exactly right, but it's from Moby Dick. And Herman Melville, I think in the chapter on the quarter deck, he said, all visible objects are but pasteboard masks. And behind them, he says, that something is putting forth the molding of its features. And then later he says, be the white whale principal or agent, I'm going to strike through. Because if you're a prisoner, you strike through the wall to get out of the prison. What Melville is talking about is that we humans are trapped in a material world. And if there is an ideal world beyond or invested or somehow like a ghost in a machine, we, we can't get at it. We have to somehow break through the material world. It's kind of like, you know, in that movie about the Matrix. And um, another image is that the image of a tapestry. You know, when I was in France, I went to the Cluny Museum, which I think is called the Musée du uh, Moyen-Âge, the Middle Ages. And there they have these wonderful six tapestries called the Lady and the Unicorn. And you can look them up on YouTube. And they're spectacular. And if you see the front side of the tapestry, you see the story that the weavers were trying to tell. If you see the back side of the tapestry, which they don't show you, you see all the tangles of, of threads and everything that of the actual construction process. So if we can go to the next slide, I'm trying to show that there's value in both the front and back of the tapestry. And that I express as both history and myth. The history and myth is not the same as fact and fiction. That's a mistake that people make who are not literary. I, I have my training in literary uh, crit criticism and, and law. So uh, I, history and myth, the, the way I look at history is history is the story of what happened. Myth is the story of what happens. What? What does what do I mean? When a historian writes a story, the purpose of the historian, he takes the language that he knows and he writes a story that is to take the reader back in time so that the reader can experience the actual events that the historian is writing about. That's the purpose of the historian. And curiously, there are a couple of problems with this because you can, the historian can never be completely accurate. And, uh, and that's why histories are written and rewritten because more evidence comes forth and you have to change, you know, and newer historians are kind of repudiating older historians or adding to them. And that's always going on, that's important. But when we read a history, we read it sequentially. And then we have to stop and we contemplate it as a whole. But we can't really do that because we've already forgotten the elements of our sequential reading, so we have to reread it. So we're going through a, an agonizing process when it comes to history, and, and it's true also with myth, that we read sequentially, we remember as a unit. 
And so uh, the image I give to you is when I was at the, at the Louvre, I was looking at the Venus de Milo, and a beautiful statue, and I walked around it like I could walk around the David in Florence and see the whole the David, but I never see the whole statue. I only see it in little sections as I walk around. And in my mind later, my mind fools me and creates an image that I've seen the whole thing, but I've never seen the whole thing. And right. so we, that, that, we, we, Paul, we observe- I was just gonna say, that reminds me that's similar. Go ahead, I'm sorry, Bill. That's okay. I was just trying to just say that that reminds me of a similar image that uh, Thoreau uses in Walden about walking around a mountain. Exactly. You never exactly. see the full and mountain. You never see the full mountain. You know, and if you're really careful, a real scientist, if you're p passing a flock of sheep, you say, I, I saw only one half of the flock of sheep, the other half I couldn't see from the other side. I mean, scientifically, you have to be careful that way. That's the lawyer in you uh, talking now. Uh, 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 now let's go to myth. It's the story of what happens, not what happened. It's the story of archetypes or repeated experiences. The boy meets girl and they fall in love. You know, the romantic genre, the tragedy. The person has a tragic flaw and brings upon his own tragic end. Those are mythic structures. And what what the historian tries to tell you is what happened, what the, what the theologian or, or, or the poet tries to tell you is what the history means. It's the, it's the story hidden by history. And that's why when you read the New Testament, you, you get the sense, this is not a biography of Jesus. They don't tell us how tall he was or what he looked like or what the color of his hair was, he had good or bad teeth what he liked to do when he went out to the beach, you know, <laughs> out west of Jerusalem and went to the beach and how he frolicked. They don't tell you that. They don't tell you what his favorite food was, you know, whether he was left-handed or right-handed, whether he was married or not. We get nothing because they're not writing a history. What are they write? They say, well, you know, it's not, we're not telling, because if we had transported you back in a time machine and you were to be at the time of Jesus and seen this young rabbi going from Dan to Beersheba, preaching and healing and, you know, talking to the woman at Samaria and getting nailed to a piece of wood, you might not know what it really meant. We have to tell you that he was the Messiah. And the purpose of the New Testament is essentially to tell you that he is fulfilling all of the prophecies of the Old Testament about the Messiah. That's how we know they're true. We know Jesus is the Messiah because he fill, fulfills those prophecies and those expectations in the tropes of the Old Testament. But we know the Old Testament is true because Jesus fulfilled them. So it's a circular, it drives people crazy because it's a circular thing. It doesn't point outside itself. It points to these types and anti-types in the scripture. And that's not something we're used to. But the German biblical scholars of the 19th century, they understood what was going on and they came up with a couple of words I want to introduce now. Uh, they understood that history was one thing and myth was another. And they called it Weltgeschichte was history, the world story, the one we can see. And Heilgeschichte was the sacred story, or sometimes it's interpreted salvation story or the holy story, but it's the mythical story behind the history. So we have to keep those two, and this is the end of my digression, so let's go to the next slide. 
Can I mention here the the G.K. Chesterton quote that I brought up in our phone conversation the other day, Paul? Yes, please. Thank you. Because uh, it, it's such a great thing for me because it really synopsized it down for me and made it really clear exactly what it is you're talking about. It's uh, when he said about fairy tales, it's this idea of different definitions of truth. Absolutely. And he said, uh, fairy tales. Fairy tales are not true because they teach us dragons are real. Fairy tales are true because they teach us dragons can be defeated. That's exactly right. Yeah. And RFM, in our call, sort of conversating about some of the ground we would go into tonight, I was, because having read folks, a book I highly recommend is Sapiens by Yuval Harari. But one of the ideas is that, and the science shows this, and I told you this on the phone, RFM, but science shows that you really shouldn't teach young children about the reality of evil. And the myth story is that the boogeyman lives underneath the bed or he's in the closet. The, the reality or the historical story is that the child molester lives a half a block down across the street. And there is value in myth in teaching us how the world works, even if it doesn't represent how things actually happened in chronological order on the earth, or it doesn't tell the right characters. And, um, and so I just want to say here up front, like, I deeply value myth, and I think it's one of the tools that has allowed the human species to survive and have the prominence that it does. I agree. I'm sorry that apparently my um, it's my my face on the screen is not keeping up with my voice. Yeah, I hope, but or... your sounds coming through loud and clear, and uh, as long as that happens, we'll be good. All right. So now we come to problems for the church. Now, based on this theory I have of a hybrid of idealism and materialism, something's going on where these two things are working together, that there's two sides to the tapestry, there's something going on, and we have to, we have to be, pay attention to it, and the church has not paid attention to it, which has created a lot of problems for members. So let's move on to the next slide. Uh, one, the first... First, the first, it's not the most important. I'm going to get to the, what I consider the most, impro most important problem that the church has. But, but I want to talk about, initially, this is not maybe the most important, but it is a serious problem, and that Joseph Smith gave two origin stories for Mormonism. One was the Weltgeschichte story, which is the one that actually played out in history, and the other is the Heiligeschichte story, which has been constructed later when the Book of Mormon has shown to have historicity problems. So the first story was that the book, that this church started because Joseph Smith and Moroni appeared to him and he found the plates and he translated them. And, and then later he talked about the first vision. But the, the, the first story was that Mormonism starts with the Book of Mormon, not the first vision. That's how it plays out in history. But later, after the, he told about the first vision, there are a number of different versions of this theophany, and I don't see any problem with those. I think a vision is like a dream, I think, and you re, at different times you remember different parts of it, and you might tell it differently, and it, I don't think that they are that inconsistent to be a problem, personally, but other people do. 
But the important thing is the Book of Mormon was originally the origin point for Mormonism, but later the, the first vision is replaced as it. And there's a kind of first shall be last, last shall be first stuff going on here. And I just point that out because I think it 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 uh, plays into the problems with the Book of Mormon. So let's go to the next slide. Okay. There they are. So based upon the uh, the now Heiligeschichte, the second version of the origins of the Book of Mormon, you have 1820, the first vision. This is what is taught now. There's 1820, the first vision. Joseph there is chosen as a prophet. 1829, the Book of Mormon comes out as a it's a treated as a history. Uh, in 1830, you have the church organized and the priesthood uh, revealed to Joseph and Oliver. By 1832, you have a, a presidency of the church. In 1835, you have the apostles and 70 are called. And uh, they have they later claim to have the power to create a new first presidency, but, but that's what develops uh, in, in 1844. In 1836, the Kirtland Temple is erected as it's now treated like a starter temple. The, in 1842, the endowment ritual is revealed in 1840. Uh, six, the Nabu temple is finished and it becomes a pattern for later temples as family temples. That's what is told, uh, we are told that now. And in 1847, the Mormon exodus, it's escape from the world uh, and persecution. So we have a kind of a shape here that the modern church presents. Uh, I think it's a problematical uh, shape, but, but there it is. And um, that's the current historical timeline. Let's go to the next slide if we can. Okay, the question is, is the church origin story mystical or historical? What's going on? The LDS Church puts the first vision as the origin of Mormonism, but it also posits the Book of Mormon as its origin story, and these are different. The first vision is Heiligeschichte, because Joseph Smith going into Grove and praying and seeing a theophany, what's the? We only have Joseph Smith's word for this. It's entirely subjective. The Book of Mormon story is the Weltgeschichte. It not only comes first in the actual history of the church, but it, you also have a book. Now it's true that the contents of the book can't be proved, but you have an actual book. You have an objective text that is the source of Mormonism. What's going on here? Well, neither story is provable with objective evidence. We have translation problems. We have, how did it, where does it come from? Did he translate it? Was he writing it? Was it written by somebody else? And the first vision is entirely subjective. The Book of Mormon is without supporting historical evidence. So really both are Heilgeschichte, they're both mythological in a certain way. And the more people try to believe that they are Weltgeschichte, the more problems they encounter because they won't accept the mythical aspects of the Mormon restoration. So let's go to the next slide. Isn't it true, though, that the founder, again, Joseph Smith, the early leaders of the church, anybody associated with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon or the initiation of the church is imposing all of this stuff as a literal story, which again, 
I recognize that lots of religious systems impose their religious stories as history. But yeah, this, they did this and it wasn't wise and they didn't know what they were doing. I, I think that they, the leaders of the church have relentlessly led the church astray because they were literalists. They were not literary men. They were, I, I frankly, what can I say? I mean, I, I think they were wrong, but I, I don't blame them because the book presents itself as a history and Joseph, there was no clarification from saying, you know, think of the, I think there were clues, frankly, I think there were some real clues. We'll get to those in a minute, but, but, but yes, the problem is that it's not a historical text and, but they believed it was, and Joseph Smith believed it was. And as such an historical text, as I say here, it's, an historical text in the second paragraph on the on the on the left says an historical text points outside of itself for external evidence to support it, and those evidences are in the form of documents, witnesses, and archaeological artifacts. And none of those have been found. The DNA doesn't work. There's no swords. There's no bodies. There's no Zarahemla. Where's the narrow neck of land? It could be in Indonesia. We don't know. We there's arguments about everything. So that's is it a literary text? I say yes. The Book of Mormon is obviously a literary work. A literary work does not point outside itself. It points to itself. The question is whether or not the Book of Mormon is a literary work worth consideration. And I think it is. But the last question is, is the Book of Mormon a visionary text? Now, a visionary text does not point outside of itself, and it doesn't point to itself. Rather, a visionary text calls the reader to see through it, to see through the text, like through a pair of glasses, to a transcendent truth. The question is whether or not the Book of Mormon points to such a transcendent truth. And that's the issue I want to address next. By next, I mean the next slide. <laughs> oh, I already, I already... Sorry that my, uh, my internet is slow enough that it's uh, interfering with the with the picture. Yeah, no, sorry. All right, so here are the clues that the Book of Mormon is Heilgeschichte and not Weltgeschichte. It's a sake, it's a myth, not a history. Clue number one, the Book of Mormon story is about Old Testament people who believe in Jesus Christ by name 600 years before he's born. I ask you, is that probable? No. Well, no, it's not. But it also seems like Heilsgeschichte, anything that you could put under the Heilsgeschichte category or heading could also go under the fraud heading. Yeah, sure. And I know that. It could be all a fraud. But the, and before, and like I say, that's on one spectrum. I recognize that that's a rational position to take. I'm saying, okay, it's not, it's obviously not a history. In fact, I break it down here in this blue letters. The book of, the book of Ether, period, consists of 32 pages about because the page is different from edition to edition of the Book of Mormon. I provide the percentages. 6.2% of the Book of Mormon addresses the Book of Ether, which happened 2,000 years before Christ came. The Book of Mormon New Testament period is about uh, 30 pages. Is that what I, I can't read my own? 90. Mind. 99 pages, which is 17.2% of the book. The Old Testament portion of the Book of Mormon is 400 pages, 
it's over three quarters of the book, 76.6%. What is the meaning of this? What I think the meaning of it is, is the Book of Mormon is putting to the Latter-day Saints exactly what the early Christians did when they reinterpreted the Old Testament. In the, in the first years, you know, in the years before the Gospels were written, it was just a few decades, the earliest Christians were interpreting the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, as a series of tropes uh, and uh, that types of which Christ was the antitype. They were pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus's life proved that those, anti, those types were true because he fulfilled them. The Book of Mormon is really a restatement of that, that it's a, it is it is an Old Testament book where the people believe in Christ. And that is a clue that is a, that it's Heiligeschichte, maybe a fraud, but it, it has a sacred meaning. It's pointing to a transcendent truth. What is that transcendent truth? We'll get to it in a second. But the second clue, and I think this is an extremely important, important one that I think people overlook, is that the Bible structure uh, is has a comic structure, by which I mean uh, it's not jokes. I mean comic in the literary sense that it, it uh, ends has a happy ending in, in the sense that you start in the Garden of Eden with one person and then two people and then you have other people. In the, in the Garden of Eden, the Adam and Eve are uh, they're thrown out of the garden. And then after that, there's a fall. And you think of a think of a U shape. Think of the the shape of the letter U. They fall, goes down to the nadir, the bottom of the U. That's where Jesus is crucified. And after that, there's a resurrection concept that happens. People are going to be resurrected. He's going to resurrect people. And then in the end, you have the Book of Revelation. At the end of the Book of Revelation, the last few verses, you have the Tree of Life again that was in the garden. You have the waters of life that were in the garden. But you have the New Jerusalem which is not just two people or one person, you have a city of the, of the, of the redeemed. So you have this comic structure. Now I, and, I'm not, and Paul, I'm there's not stupid. A, Paul, and there's a wedding. Yeah, there's a wedding. There's Which a male a classic and female definition, of course, there's, of a comedy. Yeah. It's just a happy ending. It's like a Shakespearean story. It's like measure for measure in a way. And so you have this story that ends happily, but then look at the book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon, you have an escape from Jerusalem just at the time of Zedekiah, who's the puppet king of Nebuchadnezzar. And then you have Nebuchadnezzar taking over Jerusalem. You have the Babylonian captivity. You have Ishmael and Lehi's family leaving Jerusalem. They go across the waters, whichever way they went, and they land in some promised land. That's the story. And what happens there? Well, they learn about Christ, but they get divided into tribes. Uh, they start fighting. There are wars, war after war, moving around, shifting to one place and another. Then at the then you have all of this problem. Then you, you, you get to the point where Christ comes. A sign is given. People are terrified. Then he actually is crucified. Some kind of eruption takes place. There's no volcano. And then maybe it was hit by an asteroid. We don't know. The, the story doesn't, it's not that. It's not historical. But there's a tremendous cataclysm then there's 200 years of the Book of Mormon, 200 years of peace and prosperity between the Lehites, uh, Lamanites and the Nephites. And after that, they break down again. And if you read uh, the last chapters of Moroni, I, I think in chapter 
chapter 9, particularly just before chapter 10, Mormon in the letter describes the horrific atrocities that each side of that war is perpetrating on the other, killing women, killing children, cannibalism, torture, the most vile things you can think of, rape. And then Moroni, the lone soul running away, writing his to remote posterity, and he closes the book saying, if you, he's not, he, when he says that these things are true, I understand that people read it to be the history. I think the way we should read it is that it's pointing to a transcendent truth. And that's the thing that's revealed to you. It's reflecting the statement that Jesus makes to the apostles when they, uh, and he says, whom do men say that I am in the New Testament? And well, they say something, some say you're John the Baptist, come back, and some say you're Elijah and one of the other prophets. And there's lots of different opinions, sir. <clears throat> and then Peter blurts out, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. And he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And I would say, flesh and blood cannot reveal this to you. This transcendent truth is not something that you can learn by looking at the backside of a tapestry. You can't learn it by the Weltgeschichte. History cannot reveal this to you. This is something that you have to, has to be revealed to you. So that, those ideas, see, and so this, the comic structure of the Bible is, is a, there's a counterpoint to that in the Book of Mormon, which is a, a tragic structure. The Book of Mormon, having been written in, in having come forth in 1829, which was a kind of optimistic period in American history, it, it's very unusual, first, because it purports to be a history when it isn't, and second, because it purports to outline a tragic structure. And in there, you know, Mormon 8, where he says, the Lord has shown you the Latter-day Saints in the end of the world. He's shown you unto me, and why have you polluted the Holy Church of God? He, he, it, it is a strikingly tragic story, full of war and violence. Yes. And it doesn't end well. Absolutely. Cats and dogs living together. It's bad. Right. And I'm following you with the different structures between the two, the Bible being in the form of the uh, the comedy um, and the marriage of the lamb, which is the marriage right. I was referring to, the wedding at the end, and yeah. uh, the Book of Mormon being a tragedy, which I can definitely see. What to you is the significance of that structure? Let's go to the next slide. The transcendent point that I think that the Mormon sacred texts are trying to tell us is the one that the church has refused uh, to, to highlight or to forefront. And, and that's the uh, truth about the Godhead. And, and it's got several problems. I've listed the problems with the Godhead, the priesthood, the gospel, the birth and rebirth issues, and the corporate church. All of those are serious problems for the church. But they all stem from, I believe, from one underlying foundational problem. And if we'll go to the next slide, I want to address that. 
And I've been talking about this for 30 years, and I feel like no matter how much I yell about it or talk about it, it people don't pick up what I'm saying. I want and, to go back yeah. to something you said before, Paul, just to underscore it because I thought it was so nicely put under this one problem that you're addressing now where you said the pyramid replaces the cross. That's right. That is exactly, I'm so glad you said that, Radio, because it, what happened in the church right at the beginning was that instead of advancing the cross as the symbol of Christianity, which I'll get to, we have replaced it with a pharaonic structure. And this structure, the structure of the corporate church, the top-down pyramid model, which is the model of all secular corporations, all governments, all despotisms, all even unions have this model. All of these have to have a strong man at the top to control, draw money from the bottom, enrich the people at the top. This pharaonic structure is the, is the evil. Where does it come from? I'll tell you where in the next slide. I just want to make a disclosure here that I'm not proclaiming prophetic truth. I'm just pointing out something that I think everybody will see here in a second. I know it's hard to move the slides, so we'll just calm down. <laughs> there it is. The problem is that the church has promoted an all-male tritheistic godhead with Christ as a second-class deity and is the icon of obedience to God the Father. This is a pharaonic structure. Now, it's true Orthodox Christianity mutes it a little by having the Trinity, which is the eternal Trinity. But there again, Christ is the second person of the Trinity. The, the, the horror of this is that God has to kill his son to save his real estate. That is the heart of false Christianity. It is the heart of the LDS church, that the atonement is based on a filicide. It's based on the idea that a superior God, the father, kills his son to save everybody else, the cosmos, the creation. And that story is directly repugnant to the teachings of the Book of Mormon in the title page, the title page states that the purpose of the book is convincing of Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself to all nations, that there is no God superior to Christ. Christ does not have a superior heavenly father. That is what the Book of Mormon teaches against. You find it in the Mosiah, the first instance comes in Mosiah chapter 3, verse 5, but the, the fuller text is in Mosiah 15, 1 through 5, and actually to the end of the chapter, but 1 through 5 contains it. You have an Alma 11, 38 and 40, 2 Nephi 2 and 11 has a gloss on it, uh, then you have 1 Nephi 8, 10 and 12, and Ether 3 and 17. Because this is so important, because I think this is the transcendent truth that the Book of Mormon is pointing to, I want to quickly go over those scriptures for your listeners so that they can understand why I'm so adamant about this and why I think this is where the church went wrong. And I just because want to note, is, I, just, I just want to note that 
it would be more so with the first edition and something is lost in every edition after. Like again, in the first edition of the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith is presenting a much more unified position on the Godhead. Uh, and then as his theology changes, then adaptations of the Book of Mormon then follow. Okay. And let me say that I agree with that in part. There is a way that you can justify some of the changes he made, and I will get to that. But let's get to the scripture, and I'll show you why. The, the important scripture, uh, it's in the next slide. I think it goes to the title page. Yeah, and I, I do, I'm changing them when you say it, there might be a little bit of a delay on your end before you see them. Okay, good. So what we have here on the left is, is the title page. And also the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself to all nations. Well, that's at the bottom. Above, it's, it talks about the remnant of Israel. So this is also an important point, because the remnant of Israel is not a physical remnant. It never was understood. The remnant is always spiritual Israel. That's why you can't find the DNA for the Indians. The Indians are part of the house of Israel, not because they have DNA that can be traced back to a Semitic origin. They're, DNA, they're because they're, they are Israel because they are to be born again. We all, the Gentiles have to be born again. The remnant of Israel are is the spiritual family of Christ based upon what he said to Nicodemus that you have to be born again. That's the idea that's in the Book of Mormon. That's what they mean by is the remnant. And Christ is the father because you're born, you become his children when you're born again. But then you've got Abinadi, who in Mosiah, the 15th chapter, 1 through 5, which I've laid out here, I'm going to spend a little time on this because this is overlooked and misunderstood. He said, and I'm going to read it. And now Abinadi said unto them, the wicked priests of Noah, I would that you should understand that God himself shall come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. And because he just mentioned going down, he starts with the sun, which is interesting. And because he dwelleth in the flesh, he shall be called the son of God, having subjected the flesh to the will of the father, being the father and the son. It's the same person. But this subjugation is very interesting. But then he goes, he says, he's the father because he was conceived by the power of God think that would be a statement that you'd make about the son. The son was conceived, but this doesn't say the son. It says he's the father because he was conceived by the power of God, and the son because of the flesh, thus becoming the father and the son. And they are one God, the very eternal father of heaven and earth, and thus the flesh becomes subject to the spirit, to, uh, or the son to the father, being one God, suffereth temptation and yielded not to the temptation, but suffered himself to be mocked and scourged and cast out and disowned by his people. Now, I'm not preaching this because I think it's metaphysically true. I don't know if it's metaphysically true. But I know that the Book of Mormon is trying to tell us a different theology. And the theology that it's telling us is, and, and let me go through this as quickly as I can and as clearly as I can, is that the, when, he used, when the, the word God is used, it's used three times, it's talking about God before space and time. It's talking about an infinite deity. And the infin infinity is not like counting infinity where you add one to the last number and you keep going. It's not that kind of infinity. 
It's not a progressive infinity. It's an absolute infinity. It's an incomprehensible infinity. Now, God in this incomprehensible infinity before space and time decides to create the cosmos. He decides to create finitude, finite universe, where there's matter and time and energy and entropy and all of these things. And when he creates it, in the moment God creates it, he becomes the father. That's why it says that because uh, that he's the father because he was conceived by the power of God in the moment of creation. And he becomes the son when he steps into that creation and takes upon himself finitude rather than infinitude. And because and he's one God. And what is the difference between the Son and the Father? Is that the Father has a fullness of glory, which if he reveals, everything's wiped out. But he presents himself as a Son with a lesser glory so that we can approach him, which is the story, one version of the prodigal son, where our, our version, the son, prodigal son comes home. There's another version that the Jews tell where the son can't make it and the father goes out to meet him. And it's that version of the story that I think is Kayan Patok tells it in The Chosen, the book, The Chosen. And it may, almost breaks my heart to t even mention it. Because we could not go to God, he comes to us. That's the message. This message of Abinadi flattens all hierarchy. It flattens all pretenses to a pharaonic structure. The father makes, goes out, becomes the son to save the other creation. He, he doesn't kill somebody else. Uh, the the uh, Slovenian uh, philosopher Slovoj Zizak uh, once said in a YouTube video I was watching him, uh, he said the most tremendous moment in history happens at the bottom of that U-shape I talked about when God on the cross cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In the moment God himself experiences the absolute abyss of existential crisis, which we as human beings inherit, he experiences. He's completely disassociated from his own identity as God. And in Can that tremendous on? moment, sorry, all the sacrifices that were made by men to God, to mankind. Uh, all, uh, pardon me, all, all of mankind's sacrifices to God are replaced by God's sacrifice to mankind. In that moment, God redeems us. He redeems the whole of creation. That's the meaning of this. That's the mythopoeic undercurrent to this Book of Mormon. That's the transcendent truth. And in, like you say, Bill, in the first edition of the Book of Mormon, that Royal Skousen's edition, this is made clearer because oftentimes when it, in our book edition, it says the Son of God, it says God. It says Mary was the mother of God, not the mother of the Son of God. It repeats this story in Alma 11, which we go next to. Let's go to the next slide. Before we go there, before we go there, Paul, yeah, can please. I tell you a funny story about this passage from Mosiah chapter 15? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Just interjecting a little bit of uh, humor here. It's really not that funny, but it was a, a meaningful thing to me. 
Uh, first off, I appreciate the fact that you are grappling with the meaning of this because it is clear, I think, to even a new member of the church, which I was back in 1978, and I was reading the Book of Mormon through for the first time, that this is not what the LDS church teaches today. All right? That's very clear. And so much so that I'm a new member. I've been a member for a few months. I'm reading my way through the Book of Mormon. I come upon this and I go, what the heck is this? This is not what the missionaries taught me. This is not what I'm hearing in church and Sunday school about the Godhead. And I took it to my friend who baptized me. We're working at the same place together. And I came to him and I said, hey, I was reading this in Mosiah 15 <laughs> the other night. And I pulled it out and I said, what the heck does this mean? And he looked at it. Now, this is a lifelong member. He looked at it and he said, well, I'm not sure what it means, but obviously whatever it says, it has to mean what the church says it means. Yeah. yeah. It's absurd. Yeah. The church tritheistic view of the Godhead was presented by Joseph F. Smith, the sixth president of the church, in 1969 when he makes this statement about Christ. And that's where Bruce McConkie gets the idea of uh, the, uh, you know, the assumption of authority. There's a term that he used that because I'm. Oh, yeah. The, um, what was that? The divine something? Yeah, the divine something of authority or something. Investiture, my Investiture friend. Investiture. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, good. Thank you, radio, because I'm, I can't remember the names of things. So, but, okay, please. But the Book of Mormon does not teach that. And in, in the oh, Book. Oh, by of the way, Mormon, Paul, I'm and, sorry. We got to make it clear because I, I don't want us, you and I, to be talking code. The divine investiture of authority was a doctrine that was created in the LDS Church to explain why it was that, with some frequency, Jesus talks as if he's God. That's exactly right. And he does it so often that uh, Bruce R. McConkie or whoever, maybe his father-in-law, Joseph Fielding Smith, came up with this idea of divine investiture of authority, which means that. The Father allows the Son to speak the words that the Father would speak as if it were the Father speaking, and the same for the Holy Ghost. Yeah, I, I think that this divine investiture of authority was invented simply to justify Joseph F. Smith's tritheistic Godhead and to ignore the, the Book of Mormon Godhead, which I think is the canonical version. I mean, the statement by Joseph F. Smith was never canonized, and but the canon, the sacred text of of the of Mormonism, really are pointing to this transcendent truth. It's not clear in the Bible. It's not quite clear in the New Testament, although it's suggested. In the Book of Mormon, it's made absolutely clear that this it, it is a it is the most ridiculous proposition that a person can possibly believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the Jewish carpenter wandering around in between, you know, in Samaria and Galilee and down in Judea was the supreme being. But it is no more absurd than quantum mechanics. It's no more absurd than the entire cosmos and, and the filaments of galaxies that go on and on beyond it. anything could be, anyone could believe. And the fact that somehow the supreme being would manifest on earth <laughs> as a 30-year-old Jewish carpenter is ridiculous. It's as ridiculous as everything else, except we've gotten used to everything else. And we mm. have, and this is impossible to get used to. It's and almost as ridiculous. Saying, I, I, I'm not saying it's true. 
I'm just saying I know it's we have to be open minded about what the Book of Mormon is trying to point to. Now, yes. if we go to the next slide, we can go. So here's my issue is that we've got about a half hour left. Yeah. And I fear that we're not going to get very far. And my other fear is that as I listen, as I read the comments, folks are still a little bit lost on where we're going to go. So I'm hoping maybe we can just pause for a moment and let me let me ask a question and see if just conversating about it for a moment can help people kind of catch up to where you're going. Um, I, I've read parts of the Mahabharata. Mahabharata. I've met read easy parts, for you to say. Yeah, no, not <laughs> once was it the Bhagavad Gita. It is apparent to all of us in 2023 that the Bhagavad Gita is uh, myth and not history at all. We all get that. We 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 read that text. If anybody delves into it, and just like the Bible with the talking donkey, there's a talking deer. But because it's we're not connected to it, we're not uh, we're not from those other faith systems. We easily see that it's just myth. Um. Mormonism in all of its facets, except for maybe the community of Christ, who does allow you to take a non-literal view of the Book of Mormon, and they even go further and go like, you don't have to even use it at all. You don't even use it. That's fine with us. Every other facet of Mormonism imposes on you that you need to take these stories literally. And the, the audience is wondering if, if they... Because all of the Bible disagrees with itself. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the four Gospels to begin with disagree in very significant ways about who Christ is and where he comes from and how he got here and what he's going to do. And hence, the audience is wondering, like, why do I need to trust any of this at all when all it seems to have done in my entire life is cause hurt and harm and that any effort to sort out what's what's real and what isn't only leaves more space for people to impose the literalness of it. And and if it's not literal at all, if it's just a myth, if if the Book of Mormon is a fraudulent book contrived by a treasure digger, why invest oneself into the story or narrative at all when there are thousands of good books upon which one could gain a sort of spirituality from that might be healthier and better? Well, I don't think that can be answered by me. I mean, if a person feels that the church of all Mormonism is a fraud, they should leave and they should find something that works for them. And if you believe that the church is all true and the leaders never lie and they always tell the truth and everything is just peachy, then you should stay in and try to get as much out of it from your ward as possible. I'm just suggesting that I don't believe that either of those two positions is particularly nuanced. I think, like I'm saying, there. I think there is value to the narratives. I'm trying to show what what I consider to be the transcendent point of the Book of Mormon is. But if a person's been damaged and they, you know, if you believe in the Bhagavad Gita and you want to be Arjuno's and with with Krishna in a chariot and he's taking you through various levels of yoga in between two armies, fine. If that works for you, fine. Being a Buddhist works for you, fine. You have to remember that the Buddhists have th thousand levels of hell. Try to remember that when you don't leave that out. But yeah, be a Buddhist. I mean, my feeling, and I, I'm not a pastor. I actually don't care about people that much. <laughs> I'm a theologian. Uh, if people have trouble, if they have a divorce, get divorced. If you don't like Bruce McConkie, leave. He was an idiot. He's one of the dumbest people that ever became an apostle. 
I told that to Dallin Oaks years ago after he became an apostle in 1984. I was his research assistant at BYU. I went up to see him and uh, we were talking. I said, you know, you guys are terrible. This You line up in order of seniority to pee. Your wives sit in order of seniority at their tea parties, the seniority of their husbands. It's absurd. He said, well, what, which one of us don't you like? I said, it's not about that. I am, probably any one of you is a better person than I am. But as a group, you stink. I said, you're the worst apostles in the history of Christianity. And they you are. You that to who? Dallin Oaks. And they're it's not apostles of criticism. the Lord. They don't, Leaders of the church. criticism is true. They're apostles of the church. They're not apostles of the Lord. They're not defending him as the supreme being and the and this and of course I don't believe that if you don't say the name I'm not an evangelical I'm not a fundamentalist American Christian that I think you have to say the name of Jesus or you have to believe in the literal New Testament or everything in the Bible no I think that it's different than that it's more nuanced I think uh, it's like the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. You know, the people who believed in the wrong God, but they had the right heart. When they go through the veil, they get to the right God and they're greeted by the right God in spite of what they believed because they were good hearted. Yeah. If Salvation I... doesn't depend on theology. Salvation depends on love. Yeah. If, and... if I attempted to steal man your position, let me know if I get this right. For anybody out there, who still has some peace inside of them that wants to find value in the Book of Mormon as a spiritual text that would help one to walk a spiritual path of whatever you want to say, human growth and uh, unity to to God's will, being you know kind to one another and following the golden rule that there is a way in which you can disentangle LDS Mormonism and probably other every other facet of Mormonism too from the original text of Mormonism. And uh, whether the text is true or not, whether, whether it really had, whether it really was a Moroni and a Nephi or not, there is enough solid spiritual ground in the Book of Mormon that if one wanted to still find usefulness there, here's a way in which you can disentangle the Book of Mormon and maybe other early Mormon texts from every person who comes after who screwed it up. And hence, you could still have it be a, a tool on the spiritual walk. Is there a question there? I, I, no, it's not a question. It's, it's essentially, I'm trying to steel man your position and see if you would say that I represented it fairly. No, I don't think you have. I think I'm more negative than you are. <laughs> I, I think that I think that it's very difficult now to disentangle the spiritual, the transcendent truth of the sacred text of Mormonism from the church and from the errors of the leaders of the church and from the confusion and in some cases the, uh, you know, obdurate, literal attitude that the members have. I mean, how are you going to, how are you going to disentangle it? You can't. I'm, I'm presenting 
what I consider to be a middle ground, but I don't think it's easy to reach that middle ground. I understand that my view of Mormonism is extremely eccentric. No one believes it. I don't believe it half the time. <laughs> I my faith is like a wave; it has peaks and troughs. I, you know, I it's it's very difficult to believe it. But I don't think that what the Mormon Church now, the LDS Church, teaches is very helpful because it teaches a godhead that's pharaonic and it has a leadership that's pharaonic and they're authoritarian and they interfere with people's lives. And a lot of people leave the church because these geriatrics, leaders of the church, prevented them from having sex in high school and they're still upset about it. And I don't blame them. They, they told people to practice birth control, then not to practice birth control, then to practice birth control. They're always interfering in things. They want to keep the, they say we're a family church, but if, if you know when I got married in the temple, my mother and father couldn't go because I they hadn't joined the church. So they split up families. They're telling parents that if you have a gay kid, he's not going to be at your table in the celestial kingdom. So they boot him out. So he has no effect on his brothers and sisters or her brothers and sisters. It's horrifying. Yeah, they are responsible for all this horror. Once all of that has happened, 150 years of this, how are you going to get back to believing in anything that I'm talking about? It's too tangled. But I'm telling you that there is a transcendent truth that's in the texts. And some people might be moved by that. But if they aren't, what, what can I say? You know, you got to get out. You got to do something that's healthy for you. You know, you're not going to get that from David Bednar. And so I, I'm, I'm your authorization. <laughs> yeah, twelve apostles are not going to. They're going to tell you that obedience is the first law of heaven. But I say that obedience is the first law of hell. You have to judge with your own judgment. And because the points that I'm trying to make in these particular scriptures are overlooked, I'm saying, well, your judgment should include a kind of some of the thoughts that are buried in the Book of Mormon. I wonder if we could go to the next slide. We can go quickly through these. There's one, two I want to get to that are I think are important. Yeah, I, I don't. Have, and and again, the slides are switching, but it may be a delay on your end. But I, I would say, with the limited amount of time we have, you may want to jump to those slides soon. Yeah, I'm kind of reaching the end of my points here. I just want to make two, and then we can go to the end. Sounds good. We can go to the last slide. But the two that I want to make, uh, I'm just waiting for the slide to come up. Oh, I can't read. Which, okay, I can. I can. Oh, is, is, is this is this it? Yeah, this is a simple one. Uh, yeah. The one on the left is, uh, you know, Zeezer masks uh, <laughs> Amulek is is. is is the Son of God the very eternal Father? And the answer is yes. He is the very eternal Father of heaven and earth. I mean, it's right there, plain as can be. And uh, and if we go back to the last one, I was going to do the one on the right, which I think brings in the idea of the Heavenly Mother, but it brings it in in a very curious way because Second Nephi 2 and 11, where Lehi says that there must needs be an opposition in all things. Well, not to all things. That's Zoroastrianism. An opposition to all things is a kind of summation of the Zoroastrian concept 
of an eternal good and an eternal bad that are constantly in conflict. But Le Lehi changes that to there must needs be an opposition in all things. And if there's an opposition in God, then we, when God creates the universe, that opposition manifests itself as what we would call male and female or positive and negative charges or a peak in a trough to a wave, which creates movement. And, and Lehi says that without that opposition, it's as if things were dead. There's no movement. There's no, there's nothing. You can't, it's all for naught. And, and this raises the idea of a female divinity and a male divinity and that some people hate that because it's heteronormative. It's not meant to be. It's meant to define a spectrum and that, that in between that spectrum, there are infinite possibilities. It's like the North and the South Pole. They're not the only things. They define the sphere. The rest of the sphere is important. Most of the interesting parts of the Earth happen between the North and South Pole. And that's how male and female are. They are creative poles and they create the spectrum of everything in between. And so uh, this is a very important scripture that must needs be an opposition in all things, should be applied to God as well as to everything else. And it suggests a, a female divinity. It suggests the, what's stated in the Kabbalah about the Ein Sof, the, the, infinite, the infinite God that breaks himself into male, itself into male and female, and then they create everything else, and we experience, we are part of that. We are released into the creation. Now, Joseph Smith would say that they didn't create us. We were co-eternal with God, but we are released into the creation and have our own judgment, our own bodies, our own thoughts, our own center of being. And that happens because of the creation. Now, in the next slide, there was a, a reference. I'll make a quick reference to the Book of Ether, because the Book of Ether is very interesting, because in the, the uh, third chapter uh, of Ether, the, the brother of Jared is going to take a trip in a submarine and he needs light or something. And so he puts out, you know, 12 stones to be touched. And the Lord touches these. And then he sees the finger of the Lord and he's shocked. And he said, I didn't know you had a finger. And he said, I have, there's the rest of me. And the veil parts and the brother of Jared sees the Lord. And everybody thinks that this is the spirit body of Jesus. But Moroni in the 17th chapter here, is it there yet? Here it is. I'm trying to read. It's hard for me to read. And now at the bottom of this in red, it says, and now as, uh, as I, Moroni, said, I could not make a full account of these things because they're mysteries which are written. Therefore, it suffices me to say that Jesus showed himself unto this man 2,000 years before Christ on earth. Jesus showed himself to this man in the spirit, even after the manner and in the likeness of the same body, even as he showed himself unto the Nephites. Well, the spirit there is the glory of God. It, it, that's the very light that he put in the stones and that he gives him the interpreters then that eventually wind up being used by Joseph Smith to translate the Book of Mormon, allegedly. Well, what is this telling us? It's telling us that Jesus was resurrected, was a resurrected being 2,000 years before he appears to the Nephites as a resurrected being. What does this mean? Well, it completely destroys the concept that Jesus didn't have a body and he was a spirit. And, and this goes along with the book of Abraham. In the book of Abraham, we, in Abraham 3, we have the story about 
God trying to decide between Jesus and Lucifer who should be the Savior. That's not the story. The God, the God there is Jesus, the supreme being, and is deciding whether Lucifer or Michael should be Adam. And if you read it that way, you realize that it's the source of the misunderstood Adam-God theory, because Adam is kind of a created divinity. It's part of the theosis, but he's not superior to Jesus. He's not a divinity, and there isn't a, an eternal regression of divinities, that, like Orson Hyde said in The Millennial Star, where there's one above another, and they were born at the bottom of a chain of command. That's what they thought in the 19th century. It's a kind of Newtonian view of, of theology, which is just balderdash. What do you... What do you do with a Jesus who, in preparation to come into the Americas in the book, decimates uh, men, women, and children with destruction, which seems also an, an internal story to the book that runs contradictory to the, the Jesus or the uh, spirituality that you're trying to connect the, the viewer with at the moment? It's, I believe that those that if you take it in the Heiligeschichte sense, not in the Weltgeschichte sense, it's not, it didn't really happen. So, why do you have this destruction? It, it's not Jesus who, who destroys these people, it's Mother Earth. What you, what you have here is a reference back to the two creation stories at the beginning of Genesis. The first creation story we, we read is the second one to have been written. The, the L one. The second one that starts in Genesis 2, verse 4, I think, which starts the Yahwist version. The difference between these two gen Genesis stories is very important. The second one is a is, is Adam comes out of the earth. He's born of Mother Earth. And it's a creation story that's based on the feminine concept of birth. The and that became the second that was. They didn't like that one because it has the sense of things cycling over and over and over again and having no end. So the first, they put the L one, the Elohim one first, because the Elohim one is like God is building a, a watch or he's building, he's creating not out of the earth. He's creating, the sky God is creating everything, starting with light. And even though on the fourth day you get the planets and the sun, he's creating it like an artifice. It's a, an artwork. Whereas the second one, it's like birth out of a womb. Well, the, at, the, at the end of the Book of Mormon, you have the sky god coming out of the sky, Jesus, but you have Mother Earth responding. The creation is being destroyed because it's wicked from the feminine point of view. From the sky god's point of view, he's going to come down and recreate the world. This is the Heiligeschichte meaning of it. It's not about how mean Jesus is. If you ever read anything in the scripture that makes God look bad, just don't believe it. It's 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 the projection of some human. We keep blaming God for everything. It's not you know, the God did not create the Republican Party. God did not create Hitler. This is self we do this. We do this in our attempt to reach the top of the pharaonic structure. Look at the back of the dollar bill. There's a pyramid there. And at the top, the very top of the pyramid is separated from the rest of the pyramid. There's an eye in there. Most oligarchs, most despots, most strongmen want to get to that top. 
And in the LDS church, the first presence in the Quorum of the Twelve are at that top. And that pyramid has replaced the cross. Because on the cross, God the Father, God the Son, God the Eternal Being is sacrificing himself for mankind to stop all of the sacrifices that mankind makes from the bottom of the pyramid to the top of the pyramid. That's the meaning of this. And so you can constantly, because, you know, you can take the Mormon, you can take the boy out of Mormonism, but how do you take Mormonism out of the boy? Because you're going to keep snapping back when you read these things in the Book of Mormon and try to give them a kind of Newtonian and literalistic. There was no volcanic. The question is, what is the mythical meaning of this? And it takes more effort. And of course, because no one reads Northrop Fry, nobody reads The Great Code, nobody reads Harold Bloom, the leaders of the church are just mired in administration and their own power. No one is going to signal to the Latter-day Saints how to read these sacred texts as hermeneutical uh, exegesis on the old Orthodox texts. The Book of Mormon is a hermeneutical corrective to the Bible. It's a hermeneutical corrective to it, and we're supposed to learn how to read, but it never happened. Joseph Smith didn't make it clear. Uh, it's not made clear by the leaders. You got to think that Joseph Smith kind of wrote an unfinished symphony, and we were supposed to finish it. But the problem there happened with the end of the fullness of the priesthood. When in 1844, when Brigham Young, uh, you know, took over the church for the Quorum of the Twelve, and they didn't follow the Quorum of the Anointed, where the men and the women had the fullness of the priesthood, all of the other quorums, the Quorum of Fifty, the High Council of Zion. Uh, all of the others, the Quorum of the Twelve, were all men. The only quorum that had women in it who were able to vote with the men, and they would have voted more independently if they had, if it had lasted more than 18 months, that quorum of the anointed was done away with. Brigham Young shut down the Relief Society. He didn't want them to think of themselves as a priesthood body. And once the men took over, you get a pyramid. And that's what we've got. Naturally, no one's going to believe me. And so, but I'm telling you, there was value in Mormonism. It's mostly been hammered down. It's, you know, I often say that Mormonism is a pig farm that's been built on a gold mine, and you got to go through a lot of manure to get to the gold, and people just don't have the willingness to do it. It's, I don't blame them. Do you on the other hand, I think there's some value in it. Yeah, do you sense, though, Paul, that, I mean, to get to the perspective you hold, it's sort of it's sort of a unique version of Mormonism, and I don't mean this offensively, that exists in your head that you you you've taken liberties to take Christ causing mass destruction on the Americas, and you've redefined it in a way that is palatable and much more um much more, uh, not, not so rigid, and it allows somebody to have a much more uh, healthy spirituality with the as they interact with the text. But every Latter-day Saint, every Mormon who wants to take the text that seriously believes in Mormonism and is at least attending or or believing in some specific facet of it. And everyone who would be willing to strip it all down to myth that was created at the hands of a treasure digger to try to find meaning in it 
is is probably just prone to toss it out and not go through this much effort to try to make the text palatable. Well, I to me, you're right. Uh, I don't know who God was going to reveal this through. If not a treasure to you, you'd prefer a banker? <laughs> and you want somebody who has no sin in their life? I mean, he, from the very beginning, we were told Joseph Smith would be known for good and evil. I, I think God could have used somebody a little less prone to scamming people so that well, do we really a little more trust? Do we really have evidence that he actually scammed people? The thing that you have to remember as a lawyer is that when somebody lies, they have to know they're lying. They can't simply have made a mistake. And I don't see that there's evidence that Joseph Smith lied about his spiritual experience. He lied about sex. Who hasn't? Is there a man on the planet who doesn't lie about sex? They either say they have more than they had or less than they had, but they never tell the truth because it's too embarrassing. So I, the fact that he lied about sex or he started out as a treasure digger, I mean, you got to remember the in the in you know in the 1820s what America was like. The lower classes were all praying for the restoration of the primitive church or digging holes in the East Coast looking for Captain Kidd's treasure. That's what they did. It's not surprising to me that Joseph went in the woods to pray. It's surprising that he didn't fall into one of those holes or trip over somebody else that was praying for the primitive church. In the meantime, the upper classes are creating the Constitution, and they're creating a, a secular state. Uh, it, Paul, Paul, can I just can I just make the observation here? Because I feel it's incumbent on me. This is just a one sentence thing. Uh, when you talk about lying about sex, sure, granted, but probably most men don't have thirty three wives, uh, a third of them married to other men at the time, a number of them being teenagers to lie about not having sex with. I admit that that's awful. I don't like polygamy, but I must point out one thing about it. There's a difference between polygamy polygyny and polyandry. And at the beginning with Clarissa Reed and Fanny Alger and his first plural wife in 1838, uh, that we have a different record already in that period, was uh, Lucinda Pendleton Morgan Harris. They were all polyandrous marriages. And if you're looking at misogyny, polygyny is misogynistic. One man, many women just means that the women aren't worth as much as one man and their value lies in producing other men. I mean, that is a horrible model. But polyandry, is it misogynist? I don't know. It doesn't strike me as misogynist. One woman with multiple husbands, is that really misogyny? And I'll just and tell you, I know we're going great, a bit far afield, Paul, but I- I was monogamy? It's on that basis that I've always objected to the use of the term polyandry when it comes to Joseph Smith marrying other women who are already married to men. Because I think that polyandry, at least the way I conceive of it, is where the woman is making the choice as to the men she will marry, as opposed to a man making the choice about marrying him as well as her current husband. I agree with you, and I don't think it was polyandry. But I think that it, it became, I look, had I been there and Joseph started this, I would have said, don't do this, because they're never going to remember you for anything else. It's the reason why I think one of the violinists didn't want anyone to know that he had, had his testicles removed. He kept it a secret because it's every time I get to play the violin, they're going to be looking at my crotch and not listening to the music. And the fact of the matter is that Joseph, as soon as you do something sexual, and the fact that he, you know, proposed to, you know, uh, uh, 
younger women like uh, Kimball, uh, what was her name? I, uh, Heber Kimball's daughter. Helen Marr. Helen Marr Kimball. What was that all about? I mean, his, her father was present. What's going on? She didn't want to marry Joseph Smith. She said so. She wanted to marry George Whitney. He was 22 and good looking. She didn't want to marry 38-year-old Joseph Smith. And later she did marry George Whitney and he became an apostle. She, you know, I mean, there's a lot going on. I don't think we have all the evidence. My, my fear is that we, we, we rely on these documents and these statements and these affidavits. And as a lawyer, I think, you know, that unless I can cross-examine these witnesses, I don't think we can be have conclusive evidence of all of this. So, yeah, he could have been a real bastard, Joseph Smith. But does a bastard produce this kind of text? I mean, is that what we see from Warren Jeffs? Is that what we see from Tim Ballard? They don't, they're not writing stuff like this. I mean, we get it from Chris Namelka. We get it from L. Ron Hubbard. We get it from well, yes, you various get people who have displayed uh, incredible unhealthiness and deception. And I would say, I, I, I want to give you like 10 more minutes here. We'll go on to whatever slides you think are most important. But let's go to the very last one. Yeah, and we can do that. I just want to say as I'm getting to that one that I disagree with you in that when I look at Joseph Smith's life from the time he's um, gets his first seer stone at the age of 13 years old until the day he dies in Carthage, I see a thousand instances where he manipulated and deceived people over and over again, hence placing the Book of Mormon in that, uh, in that, collective amount of examples that I could pull from, I, I can't help but see the Book of Mormon as one more instance of a pattern of things that he did throughout his entire life. Well, I certainly have no argument against it. This is not the last slide. This is just the next slide. Uh, I'm talking about the very last slide before we close the it should change. Though. It should change in just a second. I think it's just the delay. And... Um, I, you know, Bill, I, like I say, I, I, I have no uh, defense for that view. I mean, I am, I, I can't bring a case for the defense. I, I mean, I think apologists have tried to do this. I think it's unconvincing to people who feel like you do. I think your position is unconvincing to people that have had some spiritual experience connected to the Book of Mormon or Mormonism, and they don't want to give it up, even though they may see problems with the church. I think this kind of, you know, I don't think, I don't think it's kind of like Thomas Jefferson. The fact that he held slaves, I just don't want to get rid of the declaration. The fact that George Washington was a surveyor and surveyed a lot of land out, right out of the Indians. <laughs> he took over their property because he knew how to survey and claim property, it doesn't mean that I disparage uh, George Washington for what he did that was good. And Joseph Smith is the same. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard, I I think, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know enough about him to judge him. But frankly, the idea that you, you replace God with a, 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 an alien being 
is basically to eliminate the supernatural order entirely and to say everything happens within the material universe and nothing there is no behind there is no behind the tapestry it's all it's all yarn right there's no mythical meaning and so i i don't think scientology has much to offer i i i think it's uh it's all very materialistic yeah and in a sense modern mormonism has followed suit hasn't it there really is no mystery behind god we the beauty of Mormonism, as it was presented to me in the missionary discussions, is that we know exactly yeah. what the Godhead is. And you got God the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's a son. Also, the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit. Except that spirit is matter and matter is spirit. And so how can that be true about the tangible body of God? I mean, if spirit and matter are interchangeable, then what are we talking about? I mean, there's so many contradictions. So you got to look at what's what are we saying here? And I, I admit, I, I, I'm presenting. I Margaret warned me. <laughs> she said, when you get on there, that you're presenting this eccentric view of the that is yours. And and, but I'm not trying to convert people. I'm just saying I think there's value in the texts. Uh, there's value in the whole history of Mormonism. There's value in that tragic Book of Mormon story. There's value in the tragic story of the Mormon restoration, which started with somebody praying and seeing God in a theophany and ending up with Russell M. Nelson, you know, telling us that God is offended by nicknames and uh, that you should throw your, you know, throw out your gay kids. It's just, you know, it's a tragic ending. Maybe the Book of Mormon is a prophecy about us and what would happen. But there's value in thinking about it from a literary and visionary perspective. And so I end with this. Perhaps Mormon theology offers more than a troubled history and a hodgepodge theology generated by errant church authorities who cover their sins, gratify their pride, exercise unrighteous dominion, and fail to consider and discuss openly the implications of the literary and theological value of Mormonism's sacred texts and of the potential heiligeschichte of the entire Mormon restoration, which seems to me to be a compressed story of Israel. We even have a Dead Sea and a Jordan River and a Sea of Galilee here in Utah. And it flows the same direction. And it flows, I think it flows in the opposite direction. Is it? I don't know. I thought it was north to south. I've never been in Utah, but I heard that somewhere. Perhaps the Book of Mormon is not merely a history or even a visionary text, that points to Christ as the supreme being, but, con but constitutes in itself an incarnation of Christ. I mean, remember that the Torah is considered an incarnation of God, the Quran, an incarnation of God. Maybe the Book of Mormon has to be seen as a metaphor for God, the word, and that the entire Mormon movement from the first vision to the present day constitutes a compressed recapitulation uh, of the Heiligeschichte of Israel from Abraham and Sarah to Joseph of Egypt to whom Joseph Smith was compared, to Moses, to whom Brigham Young was compared, to Joshua, to John Taylor, to the long lamentable history of the people of Israel, to some future gate of possibility of peace and redemption. And I, my favorite passage of the Book of Mormon is that Christ is the keeper of the gate. The keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel, and he employeth no servant there. And I think ultimately, and that's where people say, what, what do you believe? Well, frankly, I, I have faith in Christ. Do I believe in the church? No. 
Do I believe absolutely in its texts? Well, I believe that there's things in them that are true. Do I care how they were translated? No. Do I like Joseph Smith's and the early leaders' antics? Absolutely not. Uh, I won't tolerate all of this stuff that they did, but I think there's something there. But I, I'm like, I'm kind of wind up following the Book of Mormon tragic narrative, which is I'm alone. I have Margaret, and we we don't we're you know we're not liked by the true believers, and we're not liked by the true unbelievers. We're in the middle, and we wind up. I mean, I can't defend my eccentric beliefs, really. I just I'm like Sancho Panza, and Jesus is to me like uh, Don Quixote. Don Quixote, you know, I and I I like him. <laughs> I, I really help. like him. I really like him. I, I can't <laughs> but help it. It is a scalded chicken. I like him. I just like him. I can't help it. <laughs> and if he's not the supreme being, I think he should be. Paul, we uh, when we get to the end of the show, we normally take a few live uh, calls from callers. Do you do you mind taking a few phone calls? I, not at all. While you're setting those up, I want to ask a question. Paul, you, you mentioned Margaret talking to you about coming on tonight's show and expressing your concern. What did you tell her? And the reason I'm getting to this is because you've written books about this, many books about this. You're coming on this show. You do, in many respects, recognize that you are a voice in the wilderness, crying, make straight the path of the Lord. And I want to know from you, what is it that creates this fire and passion in you to continue to try and put this message out even in the face of an unreceptive audience? Well, I guess there's two things. I believe that the idea that God would sacrifice himself for us, that that is meaningful to me for many, many reasons. I've tried to express some of them. The fact that God puts the physical universe on the same footing as the spiritual universe, that one is not more important than the other, is important to me because it is a rejection of Neoplatonism, which I think has a lot of damaging elements to it, because Neoplatonism suggests that you have to excrete the physical universe like, like excrement in order to become perfect, whereas Joseph Smith said, no, the physical and the spiritual are equally important and that God has a physical as well as a spiritual dimension, and that we should not be ashamed of the physical if the physical will be redeemed. I think that's important. I think it's important for how we set up our power structures on earth and how we set our economic structures on earth because they are models for how we should uh, advance not only the equality of the human beings, and but the equality of our access to resources and that how we take care of the earth is suggested in all of that. So I think these, the way we see theology is how we model our power structures. And I think it's important for those reasons. Love it. Great. Thank you very much, Paul. That will have some callers, I hope. Yep. So let me grab the first one here. Um, Marzipan, are you there? Oop, let me, let me try to, Put you up on, uh, let's try that. Try again. Hmm. I am not. 
All right, I'm going to try something else here. I'm going to put you. All right, so go ahead and, and state your your comment uh, to uh, Paul and to uh, RFM. If you try to talk to her, uh, she won't be able to hear. I've got to hold the phone up to the microphone. But go ahead, Marzipan. So um, I studied literature uh, as well. That's my background. Um, and to me, I feel like context always matters in literature. And so my question is, if the origin of the Book of Mormon is not what it's claimed to be, what do you think the origin of the Book of Mormon is, and why does that not matter? Because to me, I still think that the the Bible is very valuable as a piece of literature, it's poetry, it's written by hundreds of people over thousands of years. Its very existence is valuable. It's like the wisdom of the ancients, if you want to think of it. But if the Book of Mormon is not what it's claimed to be, then it's work of intentional racism by a man who was a charlatan and a sexual predator. So where would its value come from? Well, like I say, if you believe that Joseph Smith was a charlatan and a sexual predator, um, and and in addition to that, you you don't see any value in the Book of Mormon. You don't think it could have any value because of its its origins. You think he's he wrote it and all of that. I I don't think I can defend it. I mean, I've already pointed to the passages of Scripture, and there are others in the Book of Mormon that I think refute the uh, first four ecumenical councils of the Christian church, maybe the first seven. Um, and they, I think with good reason. Uh, I think the, the, the Greek fathers of the, of the Christian church that, that formulated the, the theology of the church from around 325, maybe 321 uh, on to 736, the first seven ecumenical councils, I think that Joseph Smith refutes those. Yeah, he might. I, you, I, I, I'm a lawyer, and so therefore the idea that Joseph Smith was a, a sexual predator in the way that you say, or that he was a liar and a fraud, the way many people believe, my feeling is that I, when I, and I have looked at the evidence, I don't think it's conclusive. I think it could be true. I think without cross-examining those people, we can't know. I think historians can tell us what they believe to be true, but I think when we make the kind of personal judgments that people make, you know, basically condemning Joseph Smith as essentially a criminal, uh, I think we have to look at that evidence. I don't see that we can do that. So therefore, I have, I'm open-minded about that. I, I'm, I'm saying that it could be true. I'm not saying that I'm not defending him. I'm just saying I, I could never as a judge on the, if I were a judge in a court of law and this evidence were presented to me without cross-examination and without deep consideration of the possibilities of misinterpreting what people say and realizing there were a lot of people who were willing to lie about him as well as tell the truth and that he himself was trying to defend himself, maybe by lies, how can we come to a conclusion? So I'm open about that. But if you reach that conclusion yourself, I have no judgment for you. I, I, I don't. But and I can see why you wouldn't want to accept the Book of Mormon, and it wouldn't have any value. 
Does it seem, Paul, like it's the most rational answer that the things collectively said about Joseph Smith weren't true? Or or would you say like the evidence seems to point to there being a problem with Joseph Smith's character? He seems to have done a lot of things wrong. The evidence, maybe if I were to go rationally, does overwhelm me, but I want to be really careful in making a judgment call on another human being, and hence you give him the benefit of the doubt. I think there's something else at work here. People who, who have left the church have to justify that decision. And they do so by base by you know by seeing the problems in the early church and Joseph Smith and the current leaders and all these things that they can see, and that's fine. Because I think they need to leave. If they've been damaged by the church, fine. And they have to find reasons for it. And on the other side, on the other pole, is people who stay in it are saying anything to, you know, they will be apologists. That's that's the true believers and the true non-believers. I'm I'm saying that if you if I do not base my decision on the character of Joseph Smith because I don't believe I can know it. There's yeah. evidence on both sides. He was a good guy and a bad guy. It says that, you know, you'd be known for good or evil. That's pretty right from the beginning, and it's true. But can I be certain he was good? Can I be certain he was evil? I don't know. I don't base it on his character. I don't base the I, I don't base the fact that uh, you know the declaration was written by a man who held slaves. I, I look at the declaration and say, yeah, all men and women are created equal, and men, men mankind. I have to. I believe that, and I believe there are things in the Book of Mormon that are valuable. That's it. That's my. Oh, I did know. I did know you had to modify the Declaration of Independence in order to accept it. What? <laughs> About all men, and then you said, and women are created equal. Well, because the word "men" back then meant humanity, and if we don't understand that, I mean, that's fine. It's all men, and the women were Abigail Adams said, "Don't forget the women when you're at the thing," and they did, and they took. Uh, all this time to get the women the vote. I admit it was it had to be revised. And that's the problem. Mormonism has to be revised. But what I'm suggesting is the revision shows showed so deep, so so draconian in a way that no one's gonna accept what I'm saying. It's I'm just presenting what I consider to be a middle ground, a yeah. way of seeing these things in a different different way. Excellent. Where do you think this passion for the subject comes from for you? I think I said that we model our power structures on our theological models. And if we see a pharaonic structure for the Godhead, we're going to try to model that in our power structures in, a, in our secular economies and how we run nations and how we run states. We're going to, it happens, how we run the church. We have these, you know, three in the bishopric, three in the stake presidency, three in the first presidency. And we, none of these people are willing to sacrifice for the people below. They see the people below as the obedient, and they are the ones that give the orders. Well, that's that's directly a modeling of what they see in the Godhead. But if you were to change the Godhead model, then it would flatten all of these pharaonic structures. So Another I'm thing you'd... about it for that reason. But you're asking for a spiritual reason. You're asking... Obviously, you know, it's not I for the money. Have I seen the Lord? Uh, has he presented himself to me in such a way that would make me passionately, a, uh, how shall I say it, a passionate defender of his. And that's a, that's a question that I think is, would, I'm, 
going to say that spiritual experiences are not authorizations. Just because somebody has seen the Lord does not make them a theologian and doesn't give them the right to be able to, to pronounce anything. So that is something that I'm not suggesting I have. I don't mean that to say that I have. People have spiritual experiences. I have not seen the Lord. But but uh, I have had spiritual experiences that make me feel like it's it's okay for me to think that Jesus is the you know that the Book of Mormon statement about Jesus is 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 a transcendent truth. Now, is it a transcendent truth for everybody in the world? I, I don't know the answer to that question. I think there are many roads that lead to the top of the mountain and they come sometimes crisscross and all of that. In some ways I'm a Hindu, in some ways I'm a Buddhist, in some ways I'm an old fashioned Protestant and an old fashioned Catholic. There are things about my views that kind of partake of all of those things. But I, I, I agree with this woman that if she sees Joseph Smith the way she does, I think she has no choice but to reject the religion that comes from him. Yeah. Yes. And yet I think it's fair to say that you see in Joseph Smith and his writings a depth of um, understanding about God and the Godhead and theology that resonates very much with you. Yes. I don't know whether Joseph Smith understood what he wrote, but I think that there is in the text and I don't under, I don't know whether he understood it. In his King Follett discourse, it's extremely contradictory. That there are itself, it's internally contradictory, and I'm glad it's not canonical, because there are things he says. You know, I listed all the paragraphs by number, and if you were to number it, paragraph 24 or 26 are conflicting with paragraph 14, and you can go back and do that analysis. Uh, he he contradicts himself in that in that discourse quite a bit, and it and, and it contradicts the Book of Mormon. It contradicts some of the elements of the Old Testament. I don't fault him for that. I mean, people, it's a its a discourse. It's not written. He's up there bellowing it out in the Bowery or whatever in Nauvoo, and he's making it up, and he, he digresses, and it's a funeral sermon, partly. It's not canonical, but I think there's truth in it. The concept of progression, I think God progresses downward so we can progress upward. I think there's an element of truth in it, but I, it contradicts Abinadi's statement. So what do I do? You know, I, I, as a theological scholar of Mormonism, I look at it. I faced it. I, I've written my book, The Serpent and the Dove, in which I try to hammer a lot of this out in the first chapter. But, you know, it's like I say, I, my faith has peaks and troughs. Paul, I have good news for you. Somebody bought that book. Oh, I did, and I read it. It's been a few years ago. But that's why what you're talking about tonight isn't completely new to me. Yeah. We've got, uh, let's take two more callers here, and then we'll wrap up. I believe this might be uh, Ted. Ted, are you are you there? Hello? Yes. Hello? Yeah. Let me see if I can show the speaker. Go ahead, my friend. Hi. Um, so, yeah, this was an interesting episode for me because um, I could tell, hopefully tell my uh, Mormon story in 30 seconds or less. But um, 
my now ex-wife was a Mormon. So when we met, she told me she was Mormon and she said it was another um, um, Christian religion. So I said, oh, okay. Um, and she said, would you like to have the elders come over? I said, sure. Elders come over and they would say things like, um, um, yeah, this is another book of Jesus Christ. And we have um, people like Middle East people came over, which became Nephites and Lamanites. Right? And without knowing anything, I'm not a biologist, anything like that. Uh, I just was aware, like, well, that's not right. Like, it's Native Americans that uh, that were here first. And so then they said, well, just start reading the Book of Mormon and um, uh, it'll all become clear. So I started reading the Book of Mormon. And before I say that, I love the um, New Testament. Like, I love Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I love, like, how, just how genius, like, Jesus was with um, um, even the, the taxation. Like, well, what do you think about taxation? Well, who's on the who's on the coin? Uh, Caesar. We'll give it back to Caesar. You know, like that, just that and many other things I was fascinated by. But starting to read the Book of Mormon, it was, extremely uncomfortable like i said i'm i'm, I'm just somebody that uh is curious um so i said horses there was no horses like uh chariots wheels there was no wheel and, and so i started getting um upset with that and um i think I, I told you guys last week my um my sharon story about going to um visit sharon and, and then i so then i said okay the book of moments not working for me let me just research um, Joseph Smith. And some of the things that nobody ever says, like about the um, about his treasure digging and stuff, is whether he was prosecuted or not makes no difference to me. It was the fact that he did something that was illegal at the time that really bothered me. So um, moving, moving on from that, then going to like Helen Mark Kimball, which you guys mentioned, uh, the fact whether he had sex with her or not, it destroyed her life. Like, you know, she couldn't go to dances, this and that. Like, some of the stuff is just so egregious. And then going on, like uh, him going to uh, making an, an illegal bank, you know, and, and taking people for their money. Um, and then the uh, Nebu Expositor and, you know, read that paper. Like, you know, and, and people will do mental gymnastics and say that all never existed. But um, just so many things. Um, I couldn't find I couldn't find peace anywhere with Mormonism. So when I saw this, like Mormonism true, well, I was like, no, I, I, I don't know how people can come up with anything but all. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's my story. And I, I just want to say, I want to say one more because I still do believe in God. Like, so I don't um, totally understand um, uh, evolution. I just don't get it. I don't believe it. But when you guys discussed, um, when you guys discussed like the eclipse last week, one of the things that nobody just, nobody mentions about the eclipse is the sun is 400 times bigger in diameter wise than the moon but it's 400 times further away which makes the like when you guys show the swath that goes through the that was going through the united states 
to me, that is a miracle. And um, so I, I still believe that there must be a higher power. Sometimes I just think he's a jerk, but anyway. Thank you, Colin. That's all I had to say. Uh, hey, Ted, Ted, before you go. Yeah. And I insist I like your shirt. Yeah. RFM Thank you so much, Ted. Ted, are you from? What are you? Are you from Brooklyn or something? What's with the accent? Where are you from? Where are you from? He wants to know. <laughs> I, I grew up just outside of uh, of Boston. But yeah, Boston. Boston. I thought it was in Mister Cotter's classroom for a second there. Yeah. Good to have you watching the show. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. And, uh, I guess that's what started me being curious is um, just how the, um, our country evolved. Yeah, thank you, Ted. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I can't hear you. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm talking over you, but I can't hear you on my phone. Yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. You're not the thank first. You. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. If I could respond to Ted just briefly, uh, I, I, um, I think that uh, a lot of the um, things that he mentioned, the Kirtland Bank and the treasure digging, divining, and all of these things, divining rods and all of this, uh, the Woodbine group that Oliver Cowdery belonged to. There's just all kinds of things that you could discover in Mormonism. They are disturbing. I think the problem really was that the early church leaders may have known about them. I think that no one church leader knew everything. I think that di different ones knew different things, and they didn't always compare notes. I, I know that Abraham Cannon, who was a an apostle uh, in his journal, it was clear that he didn't know what his father, George Q. Cannon, knew. I mean, he, they just didn't talk about some things. It's ridiculous. And, and uh, in any case, in 1954, and I think Lynn Packer, the the um, uh, who's a reporter, an independent reporter, a very good one, and I've known him for a long time, uh, he, he, in one of his podcasts, he points out that in 1954, a decision was made by J. Reuben Clark, Harold B. Lee, I think uh, eventually Boyd K. Packer kind of got on board with it later, but um, that they were just going to keep things a secret. They were not going to reveal the troubled history of Mormonism. They weren't going to try to defend it because they thought the decision is, let's not defend it because we don't know whether we can. We're going to just cover it up. And they did. And it went on and on for years, but eventually with the advent, I mean, I was aware of most of the things that Ted mentions and a lot more. But in 1966, when I was Hiram Anderson's research assistant, he made me read all these journals, some of them, you know, like the William Clayton Journal and all of this stuff. I was aware of all this stuff. It didn't strike me as particularly bad. And the reason why I didn't, it struck me as bad, but I just thought, well, people are bad. You know, what is, that's what the redemption is about. That's why we have to repent. It applies to leaders. It applies to all of these things. It just didn't bother me very much because I saw the Heiligenschicht, I wouldn't have said it that way, that there was a salvation truth going on and that we have to repent. And uh, even the leaders of the church, even Joseph Smith, and this idea that it's all pure, the church is going to maintain its purity, what a joke that is. And uh, I just didn't buy it. And so, you know, but covering it up was ruined by the Internet. And, boy, talk about t telling your sins from the housetops. <clears throat> and now the church, it's all the chickens have come home to roost, and you can't answer the questions. Nobody can because they didn't leave a record. 
because they were covering it up. Who knows what's in the vaults of the church that could help or make it worse? We don't know. And so the answer is, yeah, Ted's right. You can read it and it looks pretty bad. But like I say, I think there might be some value in some of the theological principles. Yeah. Right. In one sense, I'm seeing what you're saying is trying to divorce the author from the product, from the literature produced. We could talk about Homer, um, not Simpson, and uh, talk about uh, how he was a horrible deadbeat dad and he never paid the child support and he went to the bar every other night and came home sloshed. And we could focus on that or we could look at the Odyssey. Yeah. And I see what you're doing is looking at the Odyssey instead of looking at the character of the author. Yeah, I, the character of the author, like the woman said when she, the other caller, yeah, it, it's something you have to take into consideration. But the question is, could a person who wrote these things be as bad as they claim Joseph Smith is? Or could a person as bad as Joseph Smith produce this writing? Yeah, people want to dismiss it and say it's all a lie. And other people want to say it's all true. I, I think that kind of simplistic view is does not it does not honor the evidence the evidence is more complicated than that and it's supposed to be because what we want is a clean guy clean record because what we want more than anything is to be right we want more we want to be right more than we want to be saved we want god to have delivered to us a complete package unassailable by the outside world. So we could say we're right and everybody else is wrong. But instead, what we got was a mixed bag so that we can't do that. And it places the burden on us to find God in this strange package. And it's and, fair to say that the, the Book of Mormon and other writings of Joseph Smith have helped you in that endeavor of coming closer to God and finding him slash her. Well, they've helped me come closer to an understanding of what is valuable. I'm not sure that I'm closer to God than anybody else. I don't see myself as redeemed. I see myself as a person. I, I don't see myself as, you know, I think there are others who have broken off who are, make greater claims. So I, I, that's not me. That was probably a poor choice of words on my part. You feel led in some supernatural divine sense i do feel i wouldn't yeah, I, all of those terms are too strong for me i have i felt synchronicities in my life anomalies that can't be explained that have happened to me that i just can't set aside they're not proof but they are they are circumstantial evidence so to speak that there is a divine power who's working with us and maybe not in the way we'd like maybe in a quantum way in a kind of from underneath secretly a still small voice kind of thing it's more subtle all right we've got one more caller uh, and then we'll wrap up here so i don't have the name caller uh what is the name Hello. Uh, I don't know who you're talking to. Uh, it's you, my friend. Miles. Yep, Miles, go ahead. Well, uh, I wonder if you'd heard this evidence about the Book of Mormon. 
fellow is a church member located the timeline in the book of Daniel and John and has exactly found a starting point in Bible history that counts by Hebrew years to exactly Joseph Smith's restoration dates. He does it seven times from the Bible. Uh, the timeline adds to exactly 1823 and 1827 and 1844 twice in a row. Right. Now, if, you, uh, if you make the years mean certain things and you make the words mean something. Miles, did you watch last week's episode? Miles, did you watch? Hey, RFM's asking. Did, Miles, Miles, RFM's asking if you watched last week's episode. And so I've seen. Okay. All right, I'm. I just ended that because he was just going to talk over me, regardless of what was asked. So, yeah, think- somebody's always got a system to make it line up with something important in their scheme. You know, whether it's the Mormons now, with the Mormons are getting on board with it's Jehovah's Witnesses in 1914, then the 1970s. Yeah, everybody's got a gimmick, and as the song goes, you got to have a gimmick if you want to get ahead. However, these numbers and years and dates mean nothing nothing i tell you miles miles to go before you sleep but it means nothing i feel like i'm channeling william shatner all of a sudden miles it means nothing <laughs> give him a little cheese cop captain uh, i tried shoving a wiener in that warp drive but it did not do a bit of good captain <laughs> <laughs> all right anyway um i want to give- i hope that was uh, paul laughing Paul, it's, it's me. I'm still here, and I'm in your image. You're just hunched over in your I know. nap. So. I thought Paul's you down in engineering. It looks like Spock got to him with the Vulcan death grip. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> uh, Paul, I want to give you the chance to say any last things you want to, and then we'll kind of close this. I do appreciate deeply your time. I know you spent a lot of time and energy, a lot more years thinking about Mormonism than I I have, and while I disagree with you. Sometimes, you know, vehemently, I I also recognize that um, you've put a lot of time thinking about these things, and and uh, I think there is value in seeing the sacred text of the world, Book of Mormon included, in light of of what those texts sort of are designed by whoever the authors are to point us towards, and flawed as they might be. So, I want to say thank you for that. I don't have anything else to say. I uh, thank you for having me on your show. I do very much appreciate your point of view. I have to honestly say that I have no judgment of it in the sense of uh, rejection. I, I, I don't. I, I, I accept the fact that people have to respond to the Mormon question, the Mormon to Mormonism as well as they can. I've responded one way. Uh, I'm not through responding. Uh, you've re- responded in another way. I have a respect for that response. Um, my feeling is that uh, I think that's what's supposed to happen. I certainly don't believe that people are saved by the response they make to Mormonism. I think there are other bases for uh, the concept of Christian salvation if they believe in Christianity. And it mostly turns on the question of loving your neighbors and doing good to those who abuse you and yeah. giving your coat and your cloak and all of that. Yeah, yeah you can have my coat, but I'm keeping the cloak. 
Paul. Good, you can keep the cloak. I like this cloak. But uh, perhaps overarching all of this, as well as you're getting your message across, at least as much as you were able to in the time that we had, I think maybe there's some good in people coming from different points of view and talking about their differences in a respectful fashion, which I think we've accomplished tonight. By the way, Paul, I, I think that Maven may want to come in here uh, and make a comment and maybe ask you a question. I'm not sure. Maven, is that correct? I've been looking at you over here in the chat. It's fine. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. I The only thing I really wanted to push back on. Not really, she says. <laughs> I Well, yeah, I, that's what I said in the chat, Bill asked, but then RFM called me on. So, uh, yeah, the only thing I, I, I guess I wanted to push back on was the, the justification. Um, I think uh, justification for leaving the church, I feel like for a lot of us, of course, we, not everyone's the same, but I guess I just didn't like that because I felt all of the justifications or the majority of them were for me as a believer. And there were What's so happening? many bad things piling up that it just like over and over, you you have to justify staying despite so many bad things. Am I gone? Oh, Paul might be gone. I, I hear you, I'm gonna mute him. Can you hear okay. us, Paul? I can hear you, Bill. Can you yeah, hear me? Yeah, and I hear Maven as well. So I'll I'll let you know when she's finished, and maybe I can sort of. Uh, Paul might need to refresh. Uh, if you yeah. refresh the streamer page, that actually that might help. Yeah, you might want to ref. Yeah, try that, Paul. If you want to refresh the stream and come right back in again. Me? Any yeah. You know I don't know how to do that. That's okay. <laughs> Maven, I would say go ahead and make your point, Paul. I'll let you know. When okay. She's we'll try to. Yeah. So I yeah, I was just saying I just I just really dislike the characterization that I I have to look for or find justifications to be where I'm at when there was just so much that I that should have gotten me out so much earlier, but I was too busy justifying really really awful things to keep staying in. So I just I just don't think that's accurate. And, and I feel like, I mean, part of the problem that the chat has had with some of the things that you've been sharing is the idea of that a lot of harm may still be happening, despite what good you can find from the message. And I feel, I feel like that's a harm when we're mischaracterized that way. It's something that continues to put a wedge in between people who leave uh, with families and friends and whatnot. So that was the only thing I really wanted to, to push back on. Excellent. Um, ascent again, only because you didn't hear it. The best I could say is that what Maven just relayed was that there's so much wrong with Mormonism and her point of view and mine as well. And a lot of other folks that the games that Mormonism plays, the, the mental gymnastics, the kind of extra exercises that are thought stopping techniques, Maven acknowledged that in reality, she probably should have left Mormonism a lot sooner. And that there's a little bit of pushback you know, you're here, you are offering another way to sort of hang on to parts of it. And there's so many things that are wrong and unhealthy and harmful about Mormonism that there's a lot of resistance being felt by her, by me, by folks in the audience, that maybe we shouldn't make any more excuses for it, that it just, it just falls apart on a lot of levels for a lot of people. Is that fair, Maven? Yeah. And I'm glad Paul was on and I, I, it's definitely a unique point of view. So I, I, I don't want him to feel like I've taken it personally. I don't know. Maybe I have. I just, that was. No, I don't think, I don't think you can help Maven taking it personally because the whole system is to control you personally. And if people feel controlled personally, 
it's going to be personal and you absolutely should leave. But the problem with leaving is that the church has made a big deal about how the family saves and it becomes the biological family and it becomes it becomes a horrible intrusion into people's lives. So your parents, your grandparents who were Mormon, Margaret's Mormon lines go all the way back to Coldville Branch uh, and, and the early Mormons. So when she got excommunicated and I got excommunicated, it's a very it, it's a very damaging thing for the entire family. We know that. And and I would say, you know, that's one of the horrible aspects of it. No question. No, no question. But that was invented by men. There's nothing in the scripture that would suggest you're saved by the biological family. There's nothing. You have to be born. Jesus said you have to leave father and mother. You have to judge with your own judgment. That's very important. And the leaders of the church turn that into obedience obey your parents, obey the leaders of the church. It's completely turned on its head. And and I tell you, there are people in the church, intellectuals, I could name them. I have named them in the past. I won't name them now, but they are big intellectuals. They go around trying to get people to stay. That's not my role. Leave. I say leave if it hurts you. But they say stay. It'll work out. It doesn't work out. Because these guys are never going to give up their control. Boyd Packer would never give up his control. When he excommunicated me, he was the one behind my excommunication in 1993. He waited seven years to go after my wife in 2000. He, he's, it's ruthless because they're going to, it's not about church purity. It's about we're not going to allow anybody to contradict us. We're going to control every department of people's lives. It's despotic. And you're right to leave. On the other hand, on the other hand, when you look at the vignettes in the New Testament, the ones that that young man was talking about uh, when he reads the New Testament, the, the coin, give the, you know, give Caesar the coin, render to God what's God's. When you read all those vignettes of Jesus, how can you not like him? I mean, I like him. I like I said before. And uh, Mormon, the Book of Mormon isn't about vignettes. It doesn't show Jesus. You, you just are get sermons and you get a theology, a tragic story. It's a very different book. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Paul. I, I just wanted to bring up, there's a few people in the chat that have asked. I, I feel like you've answered the question. I think I can guess, but um, but they want to know if you were given a chance to be rebaptized into the church, would you? Um, well, I, I in a way, I don't think I was ever excommunicated because... I don't think you can excommunicate someone from the church wrongly. But, you know, I accept the fact that I'm excommunicated. Mike Quinn, bless his heart, may rest in peace. He used to say, uh, the Holy Spirit of promise didn't didn't validate my excommunication. I'm still a member. He would say that. (laughs) And I, I don't say that. I think I'm excommunicated from the church. So is Margaret. I would never go back. It's like, you know... It's like a Jew who escapes Nazi Germany saying, would you go back to Nazi Germany? No, I'm not. They, they're not going to. I don't want to go back there. They, there's, it's too oppressive. Now, if the church changed or if they invited me to talk about it and give some of these ideas, then I might do that. But they're not going to do that because it's too subversive. Yeah. Thank you for answering. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Paul. I, I deeply appreciate your time tonight. And uh, I think it 
the very least, this conversation calls all of us to to think about Mormonism uh, maybe a little more seriously. So thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks, and Good Paul. night.